Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Craig Calcaterra. Craig is an editor and blogger for Hardball Talk on NBCSports.com. You can give Craig a follow on Twitter at Craig Calcaterra. That's C-A-L-C-A-T-E-R-R-A. Craig, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Hey, thanks for having me on, Ross. Well, Craig, let's start at the beginning, I guess. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. I don't know. I think it was sort of very little other choice when it came to sports. Uh, my family's not really a, a, a sports family, and uh, they lived up in Detroit, and we had some uncles and weird people who did like the Tigers a lot. And just because of social obligations and things, they ended up taking me to some baseball games at Tiger Stadium, and my parents thought, oh, well, he liked it, so they let me keep going, and I was hooked by the time I think I was seven or eight years old. Last week, the Hall of Fame election results were announced, and despite the stacked ballot, no one got in. What were your thoughts on the shutout? Uh, I, kind of a joke, really. I, I think we would struggle to look back in history at a ballot that had more baseball talent on it than the 2012-2013 ballot. There were probably 14 or 15 guys who, if they were elected, uh, would fit just nicely, historically speaking, with, with everyone else in Cooperstown. And uh, for all kinds of stupid political reasons and stubbornness reasons, and uh, in some cases just failure to appreciate baseball talent reasons, the baseball writers decided that no one was, uh, no one was uh, good enough. And that just seems ridiculous to me. Well, let's talk about all of those reasons. Let's talk about some of the political reasons why players were shut out. We obviously have the steroids and the PED issues. Where do you stand on performance-enhancing drugs and players who have been suspected or directly linked to them getting into the Hall of Fame? As far as the Hall of Fame is concerned, I, I think you just you let them in, you vote for them. It, it becomes almost a non-factor to me. I say almost because I, I think that I would look harder at players who I did not feel would have been Hall of Famers if it weren't for performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, Rafael Palmero is one. Mark McGuire is one. I think McGuire would probably be over the line for me and maybe not Palmero. I don't know yet. haven't really thought too hard about it. But I don't view it as a disqualifier. Uh, I think Barry Bonds and, and Roger Clemens, it's ridiculous to think either of them wouldn't be Hall of Famers with or without performance-enhancing drugs. And it's even more ridiculous to single them out as players who did it or single out Hall of Fame caliber players as players who did it and not appreciate that uh, a huge number of baseball players were taking performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, we say in the 90s and 2000s, but very likely before then, that some of them are already in the Hall of Fame, which it is uh, it is inevitable that they are. In fact, uh, one uh, baseball writer, Tom Boswell of the Washington Post, has written and said on camera that he knows of one uh, current Hall of Famer who took steroids. Uh, you know, and and he's not named the name, but it's happened. So I think, given our uncertainty on how many players have done it, who did, who didn't, and given the the sheer overqualification, regardless of someone like a Barry Bonds or a Roger Clemens, that uh, keeping them out is is just kind of silly. I agree. And we've talked about this. I've talked about this many times on the podcast that in the end, I think it's all bad for baseball. Despite all these people who are defending the game, like the idea of that is not only ridiculous, but in the end, when you ignore a generation of players, you're going to ignore a generation of fans and you can't get away with that. Look what happened to boxing and to horse racing. In 1965, if you had said that your average American would have no idea who the heavyweight champion of the world is, it would have seemed crazy. But boxing ignored a generation of fans and look what happened. Yeah, that's I, that's you know one angle that I have never even really considered. Um, I, I didn't think there were any new points to be made in this, but that's a great one. In that, uh, 
you know, one of the reasons why boxing was sort of shuffled off to the side, I think, was a maybe a general disgust at the environment in which it occurred. You know, a lot of the backroom stuff, a lot of the corruption and things like that. Um, but not keeping it at the fore as a sport uh, is something that that really caused it just to go away and disappear as as an entity. And now I I imagine someone who is very anti steroids in baseball would would counter and say, "Well, see what happens when you let your sport get corrupt. Uh, you know, then it then it disappears. It's because of that." But I mean, I guess I would have to argue that before the 1960s, boxing wasn't pure either. So <laughs> no, boxing has never been been pure. And the interesting thing with the Hall of Fame, it's not just about the players is the key part to the museum. And as much as Jeff Idelson and the Hall of Fame has said, look, we're a museum, we're a Hall of Fame, and we're an education facility, what drives the Hall of Fame is the Hall of Fame. What drives the museum is the player inductions. And it's not about the managers or the pioneers, or the executives or the umpires. It's about the players. The Hall of Fame as a general thing right now is not doing a great job marketing itself towards younger people. Steroids aside, the Hall of Fame isn't doing a great job recognizing the last 30 years. If you go to the Hall of Fame right now expecting to see great stuff on Ozzy Smith or Gary Carter, Dave Winfield, any of these guys that have played over the last 30 years, you will be disappointed. The Hall of Fame's website is out of date. The Hall of Fame has no apps. The Hall of Fame is not digitizing its content, or at least it's not releasing it to the public. These are how you attract younger audiences. When you take all that and you say, we're not putting in the players you grew up watching, that's going to be a huge problem. Oh, I agree. And you know, you've got the problem already that the Hall of Fame is in Cooperstown, New York. And, uh, you know, while it was the case when baseball was still unequivocally the national pastime and that was a destination vacation for people, there's really no convenient way to get to Cooperstown, New York, unless you are going there specifically to see the Hall of Fame. It's not something people pass by. You have to actively market that place. You have to actively bring it in front of consumers and fans and, and, and keep it at the fore. And, and look, the Smithsonian has all those things that you just mentioned. It has a, a, a very good website. It, it it reaches out. It does all sorts of things. The Baseball Hall of Fame just, I think, assumes that everybody will always consider it important, and uh, you know, it really won't be. I mean, one great example of this that I tell people and they don't believe me is there used to be a different college football Hall of Fame. Uh, I guess what's the new one? It's in like South Bend or something. Yep. And uh, there used to be another College Football Hall of Fame. I can't remember where it was. And that's exactly the point. It like just sort of disappeared, and they sort of established this new one. And granted, <laughs> it did. It happened. It was weird. When I was in the 80s. My dad took me there, and I wanted to say it was like somewhere dumb like Cincinnati or something. And it just – it just got neglected, and no one cared. The Baseball Hall of Fame is an odd thing. It's a private museum. It's not an arm of the government. It's not even an arm of Major League Baseball formally. So it could just disappear into nothingness if we let it. And you know, if, if you have kids who watched 15 or 20 years of baseball growing up and none of the players that they thought were great are in it, uh, you know, what's the point? Yeah, and it's not none, in fairness. I'm with you on the camp that they should be in, but it's not none. It's, it's not, and I've said this before, it's not ignoring an entire generation, but when it comes to the Hall of Fame and you look at some of the names, it's realistically ignoring half of a generation, and I still think that's too much. Yeah, and, and it's going to, you know, this whole voting problem we have now with the backlog on the, on the ballot and everything, it's going to create some odd things that I don't think we expect. I mean, I don't think Craig Biggio not getting in this year was something a lot of people would have predicted three or four years ago. I mean, he's a 3,000-hit guy, would have got in. I think the reason he didn't get in had more to do with secondary sort of steroid politics, maybe a small number of people that uh, that maybe want to assume things about him based on his teammates, uh, and another group of people who 
because everyone has shouted to delegitimize the statistics of the 90s and 2000s so much, uh, maybe they have just misapprehended Craig Biggio's value as a player. And, and so he, someone who I think under any other set of circumstances in, in history would have been in the Hall of Fame on his first ballot, he doesn't make it in. I think he'll get in next year or maybe the year after, but – you know, we've we've got these little spinouts coming, and another little spinout coming. You know, when you start to ban Bonds and Clemens and people like that, and you have to justify yourself. One of the justifications I've seen from some voters is, well, everybody in that era is culpable. Um, okay, well, next year Tom Glavin is on the ballot. He's a 300 game winner. Uh, never had any uh, accusation that he was on steroids, and uh, but he was a union leader. And we saw people uh, – Kurt Schilling himself said this year, we're all culpable. No one stood up in union meetings. Uh, writers have said that. So what? Do you hold Tom Glavin culpable now because he was a union leader in the mid-1990s and he didn't push for anything more as far as steroid testing and things like that go? I mean if you if you keep the logic going of we must keep the Hall of Fame pure, however flawed that is, but if you start with that assumption, you can think of reasons to keep all manner of inductees out and it's just going to get worse. Rob Nyer wrote about this recently, and I've talked about it before. It's the the what camp are you when it comes to yes. PEDs and in the hall? There's the first camp, which is anyone with a direct link to steroids is not getting in. So that would be a direct link, I think, means an admission, a positive test, subject of a federal investigation, even an accusation by another drug dealer or possibly a teammate, depending on who it was. I think that people that fall under that branch have a direct link. I disagree with keeping them out, but at least that's reasonable. There is a character clause. If they have a direct link, it's not unreasonable to me to people have that point of view. Tom Verducci actually had an article a week ago, a week or two ago, his big Hall of Fame article, and he and I disagree quite dramatically as far as what to do about steroid users. But his position for someone who wants to keep steroid users out of the Hall of Fame is very coherent. It's the most coherent one if you believe in the character clause and things. And it's, you know, uh, uh, presume innocence once there is evidence and not just, you know, people whispering about what they think they heard, uh, then act on it. And, you know, that's about all you can do. That's true. But the problem with Verducci's ballot is that I think he voted for Bagwell and not Piazza or vice versa. He didn't – to oh. me, those guys are essentially the same story. And that's the second group where it's – the second group I have a bigger problem with. It's not only direct links. It's mere suspicion. And if I were Jeff Idelson, this is where I would have the biggest problem too. It's one thing to keep out Bonds, who has a direct link to steroid use. It's another to keep out Piazza and Bagwell – where there's nothing but hearsay. This is funny, though, and I'm glad you mentioned Jeff Idelson's name with that, and uh, and I'll go forward and also mention the Baseball Writers Association of America with that. Uh, there is huge denial right now on the part of uh, the Hall of Fame and, and I think the, the BBWAA about how rampant it is that their voters are are just going based on hearsay speculation or whatever. Uh, there was a conference call last week after uh, the Hall of Fame results were up, and uh, Jack O'Connell, the Secretary Treasurer of the Baseball Writers Association of America, was on it. Uh, he, and he, for all practical purposes, runs the BBWAA on a day-to-day basis. Um, and uh, he, he was asked about uh, writers who uh, were voting based on their suspicion alone, and he said he wasn't aware of any writers that were doing such a thing and hadn't seen anything on the subject. Which has, he, has he never been on the internet? He's never been on the internet. I mean, it's it's either insulting in that he's not reading what his membership writes, or it's uh, you know it's it's completely uh, denial, and they want to pretend that uh, there isn't this suspicion and this uh, 
the, the sort of uh, you know this McCarthyism going on with steroids uh, and insist uh, you know that the current setup can't be improved upon and and you know because once you start saying well yes this irresponsible stuff is happening then you have to start asking well should these people have a ballot and then you have to ask about whether the BBWAA should be handling it the way they are and, and that's a bunch of questions that no one wants to deal with and here's the problem I think that 40 percent of voters when you look at Bagwell and Piazza's vote totals, I think that it's fair to say that about 40% of voters think mere suspicion is enough to keep them out. And I think that's a problem. 40% means that none of those guys will get in. If, there's, if you're even suspected of using, you will not get in. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting question. And, you know, I, I wrote a little bit last week about it was more speculation on what the composition of the anti-steroid voting bloc is. And I think that there are some, uh, some have actually come out and said it, the leaf writers who have columns that vote have said, you know, it's a not yet kind of thing, or maybe they're doing the penalized, you know, first year thing for some of them, and they might change their mind later. But I think it's fair to say that it's greater than 25% um, who are the never, not never, ever uh, kind of voters. And, and yeah, that will keep those people out. And uh, someone asked me, you know, what's going to change that? And I, I came up with a euphemism for it. I said voter attrition, which is you know basically people buying who uh, who have the vote, and uh, and even that's not a satisfying answer. One because it's grim, but also because I don't think it's the case that uh, at least it's clearly the case that we have a situation where it's some old guard of eighty-nine-year-old uh, former baseball writers who are keeping all the steroid guys out, and a bunch of new thinkers are the ones that that will vote them in. I think that there are a lot of younger guys, and when I say younger, I mean relatively younger guys in their forties and fifties who will be voting for the Hall of Fame for several decades still, uh, who who fall in the never ever camp too. So uh, you're right; it's 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 a block that I don't know that we're going to be able to get over. I don't know how Jeff Bagwell or Mike Piazza get in the Hall of Fame at this point. I'm not sure I see it happening. I actually see both of their vote totals over the next several years staying roughly the same. I think that the people that don't think suspicion is enough recognize them as obvious Hall of Famers and are going to vote for them. I think that maybe there's a point in nine years if there's no further evidence on Bagwell or Piazza, if nothing has come out then, maybe people will say, all right, what am I waiting around for? But I just still don't see it happening. I think that it's come to a point where people have dug their heels in so far on one side that any compromise seems... Like, it's not going to happen. I don't think Bonds or Clemens are going to get in at all. Oh, no. No, I, there's no way that Bonds and Clemens get in through the normal channel unless something really dramatic happens. And when I say dramatic, I mean the voting composition changed or, or you know, baseball in the Hall of Fame doing some sort of dictate to, uh, to the voters or something. I, I just can't see that happening. Well, let's talk about the Hall of Fame voting process itself. You've talked about more young people and younger people are coming on that may be more inclined to vote for Bonds and Clemens and other people associated with PEDs. But one of my big problems with the Hall of Fame voting process is that there's no accountability. The only way that voters get added or the only way you ch- change the voting pool is by addition. There's never any subtraction. Next year, you're going to have 10% of the voters that don't vote for Greg Maddox. And no one says, we don't want you voting anymore. This year, somebody voted for Aaron Seeley, and no one says, we don't want you voting anymore. Accountability is lacking, and it's one of those things that I think hurts the process. Yeah, and, and you've identified a couple of issues there, and, and one of which is uh, no way to subtract voters, whether it just be on merit or as a matter of course. I, I think it'd be a little dicey to start identifying people based on silly votes. I'd love to do it. I mean, I'd put me in charge of that, and I'll tell you, look, you're not a serious voter if you're <laughs> voting for this guy. But the, the organization will never, ever do that. I, I will say on the little Aaron Seeley vote, and we, we get one or two of those every year, uh, I would have no problem 
with people making these little sort of sentimental or frivolous votes if they didn't lecture me for a month and a half before the Hall of Fame vote results came out about how serious they take the process and how, uh, you know, uh, how, how hallowed their, uh, their role as gatekeeper truly is. I mean, if, it's either serious or it's baseball and it's fun. And if you want to have baseball and fun with it, fine. Just don't act like you're, you know, deciding life and death here. But the bigger issue is they, the voting for life thing. There are like 590 or something voters for the Hall of Fame. A huge number of those people are just emeritus Baseball Writers Association of America people. They don't write a daily column anymore. They don't follow teams. They don't report on baseball. Some of them very briefly did decades ago. And that herd is never culled, uh, which is strange to me because the BBWAA will certainly take away active membership from someone who is more than a year or two removed from having a job with a uh, BBWAA-affiliated outlet. If you leave your job for you know the Daily Planet and you don't get a job with another newspaper that, that has BBWAA accreditation, you're gone. You're out. They might give you some special status or whatever to help you get a credential here or there, but you're not allowed to vote on the MVP anymore. You don't go to the chapter meetings. You don't do, do those things. And, and I don't know why, on the one hand, they are so strict about normal day-to-day membership uh, and a, you know, in, individual season award voting, but basically you're allowed to vote for life if you covered the White Sox for five years in the 70s. Yeah, and that's – I don't know. The BBWAA has been very vague on terms of how many of those guys – represent the, say, 600 voters? How many of those retired guys that have been away from the game for at least five years, let's say, are voting? Is it 20%? Is it that high? I don't know the answer to that. Well, but we if it's do some back of the envelope on that. I mean, just think. How, how many teams are there? How many teams have more than, say, two or three beat reporters covering it in a couple of columns? And then you figure out how many national at-large guys there are. And I would be shocked if you got to even 300 people who are day-to-day baseball writers uh, in the BBWAA. I mean, it would shock me because that would be on average 10 guys covering a team, and there's just nothing like that for most teams. Uh, maybe you've got a lot of general sports reporters, but there are editors in there. There are, you know, there's a political cartoonist who, from a Montreal newspaper in there. It's, it's a weird group, and I would be willing to bet it's at least 40% that. Uh, or what we would consider uh, you know, baseball freaks who follow baseball on a day-to-day basis, or, and most people in the press would consider active baseball writers. How would you improve the voting process? I would try to make the uh, electorate look much like we have right now for the awards electorate. I, I, you know, I, I'm fine with keeping it with BBWAA. I mean, we all people like to speculate about fan votes and panels of experts and things like that, and those are all problematic as well. Um, I'd be fine with keeping it with the Baseball Writers Association of America as long as the vote was limited to active or recently active baseball writers or if there was some sort of emeritus status given to people who everyone can agree or, or the voters can agree or something like that are people who are you know, baseball experts. Look, if Peter Gammons decides to retire tomorrow and, and just sit on Cape Cod for the next 10 years, I have no problem with him keeping uh, a Hall of Fame vote. Um, so, you know, I've been happy with the way the MVP works. I've been happy with all that. We get some outliers and stuff, but that award voting people don't want to mention very often has gotten way better over the past several years. It's, there's very few clunkers like there were even 10 years ago now. Uh, the working b- baseball press, the guys, a guy I always mention is like Mark Feinsand. 
of the New York Daily News. Um, I think he's even an officer now in the BBWAA or will be soon. Uh, but he hasn't been covering for 10 years, so he doesn't have a Hall of Fame vote. It's inexplicable to me that a guy who knows baseball as well as him does not have a Hall of Fame vote. And there are a bunch of guys, most of the beat writers, who are smart, hardworking, extremely baseball-knowledgeable people. Most of these guys haven't been doing it for 10 years because it's not the kind of job that people stay in for 10 years anymore. Keep it rotating. Keep people who who are at the ballpark every day now and understand how baseball works writing and voting about baseball. Yeah, and I think you can go beyond that. I, I don't have a problem having the, the, the writers and having the BBWA a part of the process. I have a problem with them being all of the process or at least all of the main voting process. I think if you had a, a group that included active beat writers, included sabermetricians, historians, general managers, scouts, you know, I know people think that there's a conflict of interest with using front office people, but we use MLB.com writers uh, who are employed by teams and I think that accountability should be a big part here. Look, if Brian Cashman were a Hall of Fame voter and you found that he was favoring Yankees and not voting for Red Sox or Mets players, then he shouldn't be voting. But I think that the idea that this is a that voting for the Hall of Fame is a lifetime achievement award for the voters is something we need to move away from. I think you can have a different group of 100 people every other year. Every year you could change it or you can add people or subtract people. And it's not a reflection of we think you did a terrible vote. It's a reflection of we want to get different opinions. I think that would be a better step forward. I also think making all the votes public would go a long way. Yeah, I definitely think that. I think the accountability thing is huge. And look, if 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 you're afraid to admit you voted for Aaron Seeley, and I don't think we know who voted for Aaron Seeley, then maybe you shouldn't have a Hall of Fame vote. I totally agree. And I think that you know, there's a lot of talk because the ballot's getting so crowded. Next year, it's going to get even more crowded when Maddox, Glavin, Thomas, Musina all join. I think that we have a minimum. Uh, if you have a maximum that you can vote for, you should have a minimum. These people that are voting for no one as statements, that's really throwing things off. I think that the hall yeah. at this point should have – you can vote for 10, but you have to vote for four. Even if you're a non-PED guy, there are easily four candidates who have not been associated or suspected of PED use that are deserving. Yeah, that that one does bother me a lot. The blank ballots for obvious reasons because that's just ridiculous. But the, uh, the, the people who will vote for three or four people – and and then actually say, well, and I just couldn't find room for it. No, you have room. There are like a dozen dudes this year, and and I imagine I, I can even remember a few a few years ago there were some. Maybe it was the year Andre Dawson got in. Um, might have been earlier than that though. That yeah, sure, maybe there weren't five that you could get a reasonable consensus on. But it's that's the exception, not the rule. And the fact that we've got so many. Uh, so many guys who who are Hall of Fame worthy and they're not getting in. I mean, most most smart writers or people who I tend to agree with are are asking to, to vote for more than ten. <laughs> I mean, it, Tim Kirchin was like, "Look, I'm at a loss here. I only have ten, and there are like thirteen guys I want to vote for." And I think there are a lot of voters that feel that way. I think they should probably expand the ballot up a little bit too. Yeah, and that's one of those things. If you have a minimum and a maximum, this doesn't have to be something that's in, fe- in effect for 60 years and never changed. I know that the Hall of Fame likes to do that with their voting process. Ah, we established something 60 years ago. Let's not change a thing. If you have a minimum and you have a maximum, you could change each number every year. If you look at the ballot and say, it's not that stacked, there are only three people who might be deserving, you can have a maximum of three and a minimum of one. Next year, you have 15 people that could be deserving. You could have a maximum of 12 and a minimum of six. You could easily get away with changing that number every year to ensure a steady flow of people going in. Yeah, I don't even see why you need a maximum for crying out loud. I mean, how yeah. often? I mean, it's, it's a pretty self-policing uh, 
uh, organization as far as being over-inclusive. Uh, Joe Pisnanski is starting a, a series this week on his blog just trying to isolate the BBWA voters and and what kind of standards they have historically held for you know, just t- taking out all the veterans committee guys who probably don't belong. And uh, you know his early conclusions, and I and I totally agree with him. Just having eyeballed eyeballed it myself, is the BBWA are impossibly hard graders. They, you know, I, I understand small hall arguments, but they are really tough. And uh, uh, you know, I don't think having 15 guys available if the voters want it is necessarily a problem because they're just not going to elect. You know, they're not going to elect seven or eight people in a year. We might get like four or five next year, and I think that'll be one of the bigger years ever. Joe came on the podcast a few episodes ago. I like his work a lot. My problem with what he's doing, and, and just as a quick background for the people listening to, that don't know what he's doing, he's looking at all of the Hall of Famers that were put in by BBWAA votes only, and he's looking at their median war, which is substantially higher than the than when you include all of the Veterans Committee guys. Many of of those are deserving. And look, I wrote a piece the other week about Hall of Fame mistakes. I identified 62 players as clear-cut mistakes. Most of them were appointed by various veterans committees. However, my problem with what Joe is doing is sort of what drives me crazy about the BBWAA. It's an arrogance thing. It's We've devalued RBI in saves because we realize they're more about opportunity than they are player skill. We are giving the writers credit because they had the opportunity to vote for Willie Mays, because they had the opportunity to vote for Ted Williams. Any group of people would have put Willie Mays in the Hall of Fame. You're not special because you identified Willie Mays as a Hall of Famer. If you had fans, managers, players, general managers, scouts, writers, any, any group of baseball people, sabermetricians, historians, would have put Mays and Williams in the Hall of Fame. And never mind just the guys that we consider to be among the all-time greats to have ever played the game. Even people like Reggie Jackson and George Brett and Jim Palmer, who I think we consider obvious Hall of Famers, even if they're not the best to have played the game or the best to have played their position, I think we look at those guys and say, obvious Hall of Famer. I don't give them credit for that. There's no skill in voting Reggie Jackson into the Hall of Fame. I, I want, and I really wonder about this, how different the Hall of Fame would look if the Veterans Committee got the players first. What if the veterans got Willie Mays and Ted Williams? Do you think they still would have been like, you know what we need to do is put in Tommy McCarthy? <laughs> I, I don't think that's what would have happened. And imagine if the writers were only getting the leftovers, if they were getting the picked carcasses of 15 years of people who had, <laughs> had not made the cut. Well, organizations like to perpetuate themselves. I mean, I, in my past legal experience and business experience and everything in the real world, I mean, if you give an organization a task – they're going to try to do the task in such a way that they're not telling the rest of the world, well, we weren't really needed. So if you appoint a veterans committee to find the overlooked players, they're going to find people. And you know whether, whether they need to be in there or not. Now, I know that's not what always happened with the Veterans Committee. I know there was a lot of cronyism going on, especially when Frankie Frisch was running the thing. You know, my, my, my buddy's in it, and I got to put him in there too. But, but if, you, if you search hard, hard enough, if you, you know, convene a committee to find you know, blonde-haired players from the 1966 through 1969 season who were overlooked by the Hall of Fame, they're going to put somebody in. They'll find one. And I, Norm Cash or somebody, I don't know. They, they'll put them in. And uh, that's a bit of a problem. And it just, and if anything, it sort of exacerbates the differences between the BBWAA process and the Veterans Committee process. And, uh, you know, I mean, I love that they're putting in three people who have been dead since the 1930s this summer. But, uh, you know, would they have really done it otherwise? They've had many, many decades to consider them. 
You mentioned your legal background. You were a practicing lawyer at one point. The Mitchell report has been decimated in court, so has much of the Balco cases. What were the holes in those cases? Well, the Mitchell report was, uh, you know, it was just selective. My, that's my problem with the Mitchell report. And I think one of the first things I ever wrote that got any sort of notice at all was when the Mitchell report came out. I basically just sat with it for three days and 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 found basically all the the selective uh, investigation they did. It was very clearly designed to be a document to give Major League Baseball something that it wanted. It wanted a smoking gun. It wanted names, and it found a way to get names through the most expedient means possible. And and it, it really took low hanging fruit too. I mean, if you were dumb enough to write personal checks to your drug dealer. Uh, and and have it's, it's, Paul Duca did this. It was ridiculous. And like he's writing on like Dodgers letterhead and stuff, and having things delivered to the ballpark. These are the guys named in the Mitchell report, um, and that's useful in some way. But the problem is baseball. Then cons- they got the Mitchell report and considered it case closed. And look, well, here's what we did, and then went on. And and that was just ridiculous. So it was it was under inclusive in that way. Um, and then of course we're over inclusive in terms of what we're doing to an era in terms of all those assumptions and things we talked about before. Now, the prosecutorial problems in the Bonds case and the Clemens case is, you know, in some ways it's the same way you have in any kind of criminal case. You're, you're, the government's case is only as good as the accuser. And when you're in the business of getting drug users, there's a reason the government doesn't. We talk in the war on drugs uh, about why don't they go after users and stuff like that. Well, there's a reason you don't go after a drug user because to go after just an end drug user in, in a case – you have to. You, know, you don't go after a guy who does, uh, who, who makes three hundred thousand dollars a year and does cocaine in his office and buys ten times more cocaine than than a crack dealer on the street. You don't go after that guy because he's a pillar of the community and the guy you got to put in the stand to take him down is a drug dealer. That's a hard thing to do as a prosecutor. So you take Roger Clemens, who you know we obsess, so we know Roger Clemens has been sort of disgraced in the last few years. But your average jury pool person who could actually make it onto a Roger Clemens jury, if they know who he is, they only know that he's a big famous baseball star. And then they bring in some sort of shifty guy like Brian McNamee who the first five questions he has to admit that, yes, I, I dealt drugs and I you know, did all this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, that's just an impossible case to make. Um, and it's really dumb for the prosecutors to even bring those kind of cases. I, I, I was greatly against bringing those cases just as from a legal perspective because it's not a good use of judicial resources. It's not combating any sort of a problem that, uh, that the limited judicial resources uh, of our system are, are able to handle and uh, they were just you know, terribly flawed. And uh, in the Bonds case specifically, even if you tried to make that case – and I know they got an obstruction charge against them. I think it was legally erroneous, but they got one against them, uh, a conviction. In that case, you don't even have the main witness, his trainer – uh, wouldn't testify. No, no government lawyer worth his salt would bring that case if it wasn't such a high-profile prosecution. Once that guy took the Fifth Amendment and said, I'm not going to turn on Barry Bonds, that case should have died and would have died if it was any other sort of thing. So they were just bad prosecutions. Um, there's nothing in the publicity end of steroids in baseball that has been well done or comprehensive. And I think that there could have been a comprehensive report about steroid use in baseball, but baseball chose not to do that. I think there could have been prosecutions that would have been illustrative of the problems of professional uh, performance-enhancing drugs in sports, but the government didn't bring those. But that's all we're left with, and so people are are trying to hang their hat on these very flawed examples uh, in, in ways that they're just really not suited to do. 
given what we've seen and everything we know about the steroid era at this point, when we did have players using illegal drugs, we did see some records get broken that perhaps may not have been broken uh, if players were clean. We've seen some of the best players in the game get called in front of Congress and really disgraced in front of Congress. We've seen players being charged. We've seen best players of a generation, some of the best players of a generation, not get into the Hall of Fame. It's really been a mess. Despite all that, when you think about where baseball was after the strike, was the steroid era good for baseball? Hmm. That's an interesting way to put it. Certainly the baseball that occurred during that time and everything that's occurred during that time has been a net good. Just if you look at fan interests, financial aspects of it, everything else, it certainly wasn't harmful for baseball. It's harmful for the people that like to tut-tut about historical legacy and morals and ethics. But as far as just baseball as an industry, as a pastime, as uh, a fan and player pursuit, baseball has not been harmed at all by the steroid era. Um, And in a lot of ways – you know, look, it did get goose after the strike. The offensive numbers that were certainly undeniably in part due to steroids, although I will quickly add due to a lot of other factors too, um, that really helped. I mean, there's a reason it, Nike doesn't do a lot of, uh, you know, baseball stuff. That's not like their national platform. It's a basketball and football thing. But there's a reason why Chicks Dig the Long Ball uh, was, was a successful ad campaign. Um, people liked that stuff. It brought people to the park. It got people interested outside of the normal, very small, insular world of baseball. Um, And it certainly did no harm. Let's move off the Hall of Fame and talk about a few other things. Where do you think sabermetrics are headed? And what do you think the next big thing is? Oh, gosh. You know, I... It's funny. I, I consider myself a fellow traveler. When people ask me about my stance on you know, sabermetrics and statistics in baseball, I, I'm a fellow traveler. All of my friends are sabermetrics, but I dare not try it myself. So I, am, I don't consider myself an analyst necessarily, even though I casually use these metrics and, and adhere to them greatly and you know, have a copy of Bill James' historical baseball abstract on my desk. Um, so I, I don't know where it's headed really. I, I think we certainly, from what I can tell anyway, and just when I'm trying to use them as a general – interest analyst, uh, I I do find the defensive metrics lacking. I know that there's been tons of work there. I'm not very conversant in them, but it seems like we still need some sort of agreed upon, if possible, kind of thumbnail for defense. And I don't think we need anything that's so precise. I mean, we need something that is as broadly precise as as OPS or something. I mean, that's that's a very clumsy tool for offense, but it's one that even non-math folks were able to get their brains around, and it really helped a lot of people understand what was going on with baseball offense that they didn't understand before. We don't even have that, I don't think, anyway, with defense. We have some that some people really uh, really adhere to and, and, and are really big fans of, and they might be great, uh, but we don't have one that, that can be marketed and sold to the masses in the same way that some of the earlier sabermetric offensive statistics were, uh, uh, you know, happened to do. I don't think it was, it was intended to be that way, but just something very intuitive like that hasn't happened with defense. As someone who consumes baseball information and sabermetric information, how can the sabermetric community do a better job presenting their information? It's funny. I, I wade into that kind of debate quite a bit. Um, you, you get into that on Twitter a lot with people and stuff. Um, I think most of the problems that people complain about are, are sort of older problems, and they're not as big as, as they claim. There, there's this whole talk about tone, and there's this whole talk about uh, – and, and a lot of people whose work I respect sort of get slammed for this kind of thing. I mean you know, MGL and, and Tango and those guys – 
uh, some of the, the earlier baseball perspectives people. I mean, Joe Sheehan's a friend of mine. He gets it all the time. There's this whole thing about, well, the tone is off. Well, no one seemed to care about tone with anyone else. No one cares about tone uh, with politics. No one cares about tone if you're an old school baseball writer trying to make whatever point you're trying to make. I mean, uh, you know, Tom Boswell, I mentioned him again from the Washington Post, told people that disagreed with him, kiss his press pass. No one ever says that there's a problem with tone in the mainstream baseball writing, but everybody wants to talk about tone with sabermetrics writing. You know, I get it, I guess. I think that what people are really complaining about more, though, is people don't like to be presented with the idea that they don't know something. Um, people are very, especially something that they think they've known about since they were five. And everybody thinks they know some about baseball. And when they're told they don't know a little bit about baseball, uh, they're like, well, how dare this person? And so then it comes off as this person's being condescending and snotty to me and whatever. And that's why these, you know, stat geeks don't get. Broader, broader appeal because they're rude. Well, I, I don't really buy that so much. I guess though that it's inevitable that people are going to say it. So maybe there's just a better way to 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 sort of deliver this information to people. Um, but I, I don't know that I'd bend over backwards to address what I consider to be kind of a petty concern. See, it's interesting though because I'm consumed by analytical community and the sabermetric community. Everyone I follow on Twitter knows what war and OPS plus is. I assure you, though, your average fan does not. No, they don't. And as much as I'm consumed by it every day, and I know you are as well, your average writer isn't consumed by that either. And I think we're coming from a point, look, we just talked about the 600 Hall of Fame voters. Maybe 100 are looking at advanced metrics. Maybe. It's one of the most overrated things that I think the sabermetric community is taking credit for is Burt Blylevin's induction into the Hall of Fame. <laughs> Burt Blylevin did not get into the Hall of Fame because of advanced numbers. Burt Blylevin got into the Hall of Fame because he was very vocal in lobbying for himself. He had several prominent writers and national writers like Tim Kirchin that were lobbying on his behalf. He was also very deserving. But do we really believe that one time, that one time these 600 writers decided to look at war and ERA plus and FIP and FIP minus and were like, you know what? He's great. Let's put him in because of these things. But then never again have used those numbers. I, you know, I would like to think – maybe someone has done this already. But, I mean, you know, Rich Letterer was really the main driver, I think, in that world. Assuming for a second that, no, these people didn't respond to that. But I know Rich Letterer um, – was was the the big Burt Blylevin backer. I'd be curious to see how many voters could trace their support, their change in support for Blylevin back to that, whether they know it or not. You know, Tim Kirchin lobbied, but I think Tim Kirchin might have heard a lot of this stuff from the analytic community. And, and I'm curious just to see how much of that happened. I, I agree with you generally that it's a little arrogant to think that that – you know the sabermetric community is changing the world because most people don't agree with that. But I, I would be curious as to see what happens. The same with Jack Morris, who I think might be a, a backlash, could be like the anti-Blylevin. You know how much of that support is is based in you know an angry response to the sabermetric community. That kind of stuff interests me, just you know for its own sake. Um, but going back to the one issue, you know, a, a writer here. Here's one thing that I would like to see change. A, a beat writer for a major paper, I don't know who, just anyone, will start talking about analytics a little bit. And maybe he will talk about OPS. Maybe not even OPS plus. So let's talk about OPS. And someone who is way more conversant in hardcore stuff will say, well, gee, why is that guy talking about OPS? That is just so not the case. That's just so not relevant. It's a, it's a clumsy thing to even be saying. He should be using blah, blah, blah. Well, I wish there was more appreciation of just how 
little accepted sabermetric analysis is among the broad fan base and newspaper readers and things like that. And I I don't want to make the perfect the enemy of the good. I don't want to see uh, modest attempts at uh, at at bringing readers and fans into a, a slightly more enlightened uh, understanding of baseball to be derided as as you know elementary or babyish or something like that. I see that sometimes and that kind of bugs me. And it's not that people are rejecting you because they know you and they think you're stupid. It's like there's this broad – if you go to a ballpark and see 30,000 people, you know, there's going to be a huge, huge overwhelming number of them that just haven't – they're just not familiar with this stuff. And so there's nothing wrong with bringing them in slowly. You don't it's, – it's not – and I even hate using that term. It's not religion, man. It's just information. And bring people a little bit of information to help them out. Don't make them accept everything like it's some sort of uh, – you know, like it's some sort of litmus test. I agree. We were talking earlier about tone and how tone can get can rub people the wrong way. With tone, what you're really saying is being obnoxious. Yes. And that's that is a problem. And it comes from both sides. Look, the, the tone of the Jack Morris Hall of Fame debate is obnoxious. That's the tone. I don't think Jack Morris is a Hall of Famer. I don't think he's really even that close. I think his career resembles David Wells and Dennis Martinez much more than he is Burt Blylevin or Kurt Schilling. Yes. However, the, the way that – and everyone is so sick of Morris at this point. It's been 14 years of this, and we're going to have another 15 years of this coming up with Omar Vizquel. The way that it's been handled by the sabermetric community has been obnoxious. If they are forcing people to say, F you, I'm going to vote for him because you're being so obnoxious, which I do think has happened, that's a problem. And yes, it's a problem when you do have many mainstream writers say things like, these stat geeks are just in their mother's basement. That's obnoxious coming from them as well. But we have to understand that we're the ones trying to gain acceptance. If we want people to use more information and to use all the data available to them, we can't present ourselves as obnoxious douchebags. Well, I agree with that. It's never a good thing to be an obnoxious douchebag. Um, but at the same time, uh, I think most of what I – maybe not most. A great deal of what I see being criticized as obnoxious douchebaggery is is usually just a matter of you know presenting facts. I mean I, I know some people will, will push that envelope a little bit. Um, but if, if someone says – you know, Jack Morris pitched to the score, and and then your response is there is absolutely no evidence that Jack Morris – and say your response comes in the form of seven consecutive tweets. There is no evidence that Jack Morris pitched to the score. It has been debunked here, 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 and here with links. Uh, to insist upon the fact that Jack Morris pitched to the score is now at this point willful ignorance on your part. That is the kind of thing that is usually dismissed as arrogant douchebaggery. I have no problem with that. That is just plain old – we don't get to have our own set of facts. And at some point, the douchebaggery is not based on you rejecting – or you liking this player who I don't think is Hall of Fame worthy. It's you are completely operating on a plane that is separate and distinct from rationality. And if someone wants to say – I like Jack Morris. I think he was a winner and had moxie. I think he's a Hall of Famer. Well, you know, that's fine. I'm not going to be able to argue with that person. But if someone is going to just do disingenuous things, like, you know, John Heyman two weeks ago in his big Hall of Fame column says, Jack Morris was the ace on teams that had Burt Blylevin and Dave Stewart on them, so he must have been an ace. Well, 
Jack Morris never played with Burt Blylevin. This is a guy who is considered a baseball expert who has been at the forefront of the Jack Morris for the Hall of Fame crusade. He just can't even find five seconds of his life to look up on baseballreference.com that Jack Morris and Burt Blylevin never played on the same team. I mean, that's completely different than having a different view of Burt Blylevin or Jack Morris's stats than me. That's just irresponsible. That's baseball writer malpractice. And for me to call that out, and I did because me and John Heyman fight all the time. If, if that's douchebaggery, I'll be a douchebag and I don't care. But, you know, I, I'll agree with you that merely having a difference of opinion on something is not a good justification to start getting personal. But when someone is just willfully abandoning reason, eh, all bets are off in my view. You've been listening to Craig Calcaterra. Craig is the editor and blogger-in-chief of Hardball Talk on NBCSports.com. You can give Craig a follow on Twitter at Craig Calcaterra. Craig, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thanks a lot, Russ. 